listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science Shaping the Post-COVID World series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 13th January 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome to this LSE School of Public Policy Beverage 2.0 initiative. My name is Tony Travers. I'm the Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy. It's just worth saying that this event is connected to the LSE's Public Policy Review latest issue. We're going to hear from two of the contributors to the review. Ariana Bandiera, who is the Sir Anthony Atkinson Professor of Economics at the LSE, Julian Legrand, who's Professor of Social Policy at the Marshall Institute for Philanthropy and Social Entrepreneurship at the LSE, Abigail McKnight, who's the Director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion at the LSE, and we're going to hear a response from Abigail and also from Jonathan Reynolds, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. So, Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. With that in mind, perhaps, Oriana, I can ask you to kick us off with the first contribution this afternoon. What I'm going to talk about today is poverty and the effect of the pandemic on global poverty. For sure, the moment the pandemic finishes, we will be in a world which is a lot more unequal than the one we started, which wasn't very equal to start with. We will have more poverty and more inequality. The issue is how long will that last? Now, to answer this question, I think we have to look fundamentally at the jobs that poor people do. So I'm gonna refer mostly to the poorest people in the poorest countries in the world. And uh, if you go there, you see that the ladder of jobs is the following. At the very bottom, there are casual workers, people who do not just uh, don't have a formal job in the formal sector, but don't even have a regular job. These are the people who show up in the marketplace every morning, hoping to find somebody who hires them to deliver some stuff, to cultivate some land, to clear up some mess or any form of casual job of this nature. So these people are completely are the poorest of the poor and they live a very uncertain life. The step above this is small self-employment in the informal sector. So you might have a car repair shop or a tailoring shop or a hairdressers or nowadays phone repair services are very common. So it is exactly this demographic that I'm worried about, which we, because these are the ones that can potentially jump out of poverty as well as jump down in the worst poverty traps. The paper that we wrote for this issue of the review reviews the state, the generosity and the targeting of social assistance in 123 countries in the world. And there we see that, especially when it comes to targeting, there is a strong negative relationship between the GDP of a country and hence the amount of poor people who live there and the targeting of social assistance. The poorer the countries, the lowest, the worse the targeting is. What this implies is that unfortunately, unless things change, the increase in poverty that the World Bank estimates occurs just at the onset of the pandemic is only the beginning of a much worse 
process by which poor people who've lost their jobs will get stuck in a poverty trap and will remain poor for a longer time and so will their descendants. Now, what can we do about this? Well, clearly there is a problem with the social assistance state as it is now. And I think the problem is twofold. The first is that there is a great preoccupation with corruption, so to speak, or targeting people who do not deserve it. Now, when the choice is between people getting stuck in a poverty trap, vis-a-vis maybe giving money to somebody who doesn't exactly deserve it, maybe it is the time to worry less about mistargeting of the rich and a lot more about missing out on the poor. So I think a more comprehensive approach to redistribution is called for. There will be mistakes, no doubt, but it's better, I believe, to target somebody undeserving than to miss out on people who really need it. And the second issue, which is uh, much closer to my heart, is the type of assistance that we give. I think so far, most social assistance has been geared towards supporting consumption. So very small grants that allow people to just about make up the difference between what they have and what they need. I think we have to start moving towards thinking about social assistance programs that jumpstart people opportunities. So large transfers, we have evidence from Bangladesh that even the poorest of the poor can escape poverty for good if they're given the chance of changing their jobs. In conclusion, this is a terrible time, but out of every crisis, I think there is an opportunity and the opportunity that we have now is to redesign our social assistance programs to truly target the poverty problem by realizing and admitting that there is a trap in which people are stuck. And to get people out of the trap, you need a large transfer that allows them to improve their opportunities, get better jobs and escape poverty in a sustainable way. Thank you very much for that. Julian Legrand, can I now uh, ask you to um, make the next contribution? I want to talk about the title of this talk, Beverage 2.0, The Supportive State. And I'm going to talk about a rather specific form of support. There are a number of different kinds of support that one can offer. And the classic is essentially supporting people, as Oriana was saying, to increase their consumption by doses of income. One of the central ideas here is that of the universal basic income. I want to talk about something that's slightly different. It's a kind of version of universal basic income, but we call it universal basic capital. And the idea here is to act not so much as a safety net for people in trouble, but to act as a springboard so that people can leap out of the plight in which they find themselves and propel themselves to the heights of better working, living conditions and more equal society. The universal basic capital idea is basically that for every citizen uh, receives a grant of capital um, reaching the age of maturity, sometimes at birth, financed usually out of, either out of general revenues or out of an inheritance tax of some kind. I think that Tom Paine was probably the first person to address this in the 18th century, where he suggested giving everybody £15 a head financed out of inheritance tax again. I think I can claim to be the 
first person to introduce into modern policy discourse in the 1990s, I advocated giving essentially a grant of £10,000 to every individual attaining the age of 18, financed out of inheritance tax. A number of people have endorsed the idea in a variety of forms. Uh, in the 2020 presidential election, Cory Booker, who was a candidate, endorsed the idea put forward by two US academics, William Darity and Derek Hamilton, for a universal basic capital to help correct racial inequalities in wealth. What's the advantages of the idea. One is obviously to do something about inequalities in wealth. I think most of the people listening to this will be familiar with the basic facts, but top 10% in Britain own just over half net wealth, and the bottom 30% only own about 2%. In the United States overall, it's even worse. The top 1% own a third of all wealth, and the bottom 50% own 1.7% of all wealth. So one of the major advantages is to try and reduce this idea of universal basic capital financial inheritance tax to try and reduce inequalities of wealth. But there's a more fundamental argument in a way that concerns people's life course. Abigail has done some very interesting work showing what there is a kind of asset effect, and this relates again to some of Oriana's work, showing that if people have an asset at a young age, they have a better outcome in terms of their life cycle. They have better outcomes in terms of employment, in terms of earnings, and in terms of their health, and even things like marital stability. And this is even when you control for a variety of other factors, such as income, education, personality, type, and so on. There are two major arguments in favor of a universal basic capital idea. The principal argument usually used against it is the, the splurge problem. If you give £10,000 to the age of 18, aren't they just going to throw it away? Aren't they going to uh, just spend it on drugs or trips to the Bahamas? Offsetting this, there's something I call the Doolittle effect. Albert Doolittle was as a character in Shaw's play Pygmalion. That was the foundation of the musical My Fair Lady. He's a dustman and he's offered £10 at one point by the protagonist of the play, Professor Higgins. And he turns it down. He says, the trouble with getting a grant as big as £10 is that I'd be all prudent. I'd look after it. I only want £5 from you, Governor, I want. And I can splurge it um, appropriately and not feel guilty. And that's why I think that this capital grant would work. But the implication is that the capital grant would have to be quite a large sum, £10,000 of the order. I mean, something that is actually life-changing. There's quite interesting studies that show Having a small amount of capital, well, I mean, a relatively small amount of capital between 5,000 and 10,000 pounds at, at the age of 18 does actually imp significantly improve your chances of starting a business. We did have a universal capital grant. It was called the Child Trust Fund, which was set up by the Labour government and was really one of the major achievements of the Labour government, I think, in an, in an act of policy vandalism, the Cameron government disposed of it. There was very little protest when it was got rid of, and I think the problem was because the sums involved were so small. They were really tiny sums, £250 to every citizen. I think the ideal too would be to make sure that it had salience and was important to people's lives, to combine it with what I tentatively call a citizen's day. So there's a kind of public ceremony when the, when the, when the money is awarded at the age of 18, where you also acquire the right to vote. You require the, the rights and responsibilities of being a citizen. Okay, Julian, but am I right in thinking that 
£10,000 for every 18-year-old every year would cost about £8 billion. It could be, be about £6 billion, yes. In the great scheme of things, public spending, even before the pandemic, was about £900 billion in the UK, so it would add two-thirds of 1% to public spending. Not absolutely enormous, indeed. Our estimates from Bangladesh suggest that actually it's cheaper to give out the big grant once and for all, rather than supporting people, supporting their consumption for throughout their lives. So what you have to consider is that this grant is true, it's 900 billion, 600 billion, an enormous amount of money, yeah. but consider the enormous amount of savings that this grant will effectively buy. And I think that you will more than break even. I think we'll actually save resources. Now we've got two respondents. Our colleague Abigail McKnight is going to give a sort of academic respondents and then from Jonathan, a sort of practitioner, public policy respondent, though I doubt those uh, boundaries are going to be quite as um, precise as I'm making them sound. Abigail. I'm just going to talk about what I think are challenges as we emerge from the pandemic. Of course, it's presenting, as, as both the earlier speakers mentioned, it presents a real opportunity of reimagining the supportive state in the 21st century. And we have dem had demonstrated to us what the state can do. It actually can do really big things very quickly. But of course, there are a number of challenges. How do we build a more enabling uh, welfare state, social security, rather than demanding? which uh, treats recipients with dignity, respect. How to address inequality, because of course, all of our efforts in terms of reducing poverty will come to fruition if we don't actually address very high levels of inequality around the world. And how to provide protection for informal workers, both in developing countries, but also precarious workers in high income countries. And we haven't got the answer to that in terms of social assistance or social insurance or social security overall. And how do we do all of this as our finance ministers will be focusing on paying back the enormous levels of debt? They'll be wanting to rebalance budgets, they won't be wanting to have a big spending programme. How do we as social scientists make that very strong case that this is a time for a period of investment? And these are the really important things where we draw red lines and we shouldn't let a politician uh, strip further and leave more people exposed to poverty, both now and in the longer term. Thank you. Abigail, thank you very much. That leads us to Jonathan, who is Jonathan Reynolds, who is going to provide a sort of practitioner's public policy response, but the floor is yours, Jonathan. The first thing to say is that the COVID pandemic is clearly a seminal moment in terms of the relationship between the state and individuals and for the development of social security or the supportive state or however people want to put it. I see my job as the Shadow Secretary for Work and Pensions as developing what will be the Labour Party's response to tackle the huge growth in uh, low paid uh, work, in work poverty and destitution over the last 10 years. And clearly that's a good job, but it's a hard job. But debates like this are entirely relevant to it. I think a lot of people who share those aspirations uh, have become very interested in the debate uh, around universal basic income because of that. It's a, it's a debate I'm interested in. Two, I think the drivers of that are people's quite right desire for a system which is less punitive, which has a much better interaction between work and support for people out of work. And I mean, clearly UBI, the premise of that is often based around being able to do that. And something which is universal and commands a much wider degree of political support. But I always say this, you can be interested in that debate whilst acknowledging 
some of the very significant practical problems of that. And in the main, it should be always noted that um, disabled people's organisations are very opposed to UBI. We think that would lead to a significant reduction in support for disabled people. But also the UK's housing market makes any policy design around the fundamentals of that very, very difficult when you have such a discrepancy in housing costs between the southeast and other parts of the country or between the cities uh, and the suburban areas. These are real challenges and we can't just wish them away. There are four things in particular I wanted to come back uh, to the panel with having looked at the essays and listened to the contributions uh, today. And the first one comes to this point about what it means to have seen for the first time the introduction of furlough and the self-employment scheme. Because it seems to me we can either decide that that is a key moment in the development of the supportive state and social security in the UK, or we might just think it's a one-off and very specific to uh, this crisis that we don't think there are lessons uh, to draw from. I, I think one of the realities of the political debate around universal credit has been people have in the main forgotten that the, the national insurance contributory element of the welfare state is still a feature of it. And it just doesn't get the attention that it should do because people will be familiar with the fact that if you are, say, eligible for, for job seekers allowance and universal credit, you almost certainly wouldn't claim both because you'd lose every pound of universal credit for every pound you got from JSA. So the rationale is gone. But the sheer increase in claimants and the claimant count during the crisis now means we have hundreds of thousands of people solely dependent on that contributory element because they're not eligible for the means tested element, which is universal credit. And any future discussion of policy has to consider these two things. I think often that is missed. There are options for how you can combine them in a better way. I mean, the Fabian Society has looked at things like, could you be in receipt of both and simply apply the taper to your job seekers allowance in that way? Or should we be looking for a more fundamental reform, something which, which is more akin to a kind of Scandinavian style social security wage insurance set of policies? That's clearly a very big change if we were to do it. It would go against much of British history in, in that area. But I think that's a question, first of all, a panel like this has to consider. The second one is, how do we consider political support for the supportive state? Now, I mentioned in the introduction, more people have had a personal experience of social security because of the crisis. It hasn't been the standard product, if you like, that they would usually get. But whilst I would very much hope there is a, a chance to come out of this with a, with a move away from some of that Osborne-like language around scroungers and, and skivers, which I think has really scarred the debate uh, in this country over the last 10 years. I, I think we can take that for granted at all, because there will be a phase of public policy which is about addressing the costs that have been racked up in response to the crisis. And it's a, it's a pretty easy card, to be honest, for, for centre-right politicians to play, to return to some of this. So I think we've got to be cautious of that. I do think there is fundamentally a thing that there will always be, under the way we have our arrangements at present, a cohort of people who do put in, in, in their minds significantly into the system in tax and national insurance and who are not eligible for uh, support when they need it, either because they fail at the savings threshold for universal credit or their partner works because it's assessed on household, not on individual income. We've got to recognise, I've got to recognise as a politician, that will generate resentment. You know, that will undermine political support. But how can we tackle that whilst directing resources where they are most needed, it is not an easy question. The third point, Tony, is really about sustainability of the system. Now, to compare spending in the pandemic to any other, <coughs> excuse me, financial year is, is close to impossible, given how unprecedented this has been. But if you look, to, for instance, at the financial year before the pandemic, a department like the Department of Work and Pensions taking out all its running costs and its internal costs, the actual money spent on 
benefits on social security is about 191 billion pounds. The vast majority of that, as people would expect, I think is on the pension system, about 58%. On disability support, it's about 30%. And on actual working age support, only 12%. I think to break down a lot of people do miss. But I've got to look at this as a shadow secretary of state and consider what is the impact of, of the demographics of the UK on that breakdown, clearly as the population gets older. What is the long-term picture for something like social care, which clearly needs a, a resolution in, in policy terms. We can't just go on uh, trying to fudge it as we have been. What will it mean in terms of the inevitable degree of tax rises or, or spending cuts that will be put forward by, by all political players once we get past this pandemic to address some of the costs that have been racked up around it? And of course, I want a transformational Labour government that will make a real impact on this country, give us a different sort of economy and society than the one we have at the minute. And we've got to do all of that, having left the single market with the inevitable hit to economic growth that that curtails. It's a challenging picture. So the sustainability of some of this policy area, I think, has to be part of the discussion too. Finally, I just wanted to say something about wealth and assets and income. And, and really, this is prompted by uh, Julian's essay, which really caught my uh, attention. But obviously, much of the political debate around the supportive state and social security is about working age support. It's about universal credit and policies like that. But the really big divide in the UK is between, I think, those with assets and those without. And that's a problem that's getting starker in generational terms as the housing market shuts more and more people out of it. And you combine that with inevitably higher pension contributions from people in working age right now. And other things, student debt and the legacy of what that means on people's real incomes as they pay their back through their working lives. I think a lot of the, the very significant political cleavage around age and voting intention is related to this conversation around assets and income and, and winners and losers and how that plays out. Uh, Julie, you addressed one question, which is how did the Cameron government and the coalition so easily wipe away so much progress, whether it was on child poverty or on asset building, your, your reference to the amount of money that has to be put into to generate that political support, I think is relevant to that. But I think alongside tackling these questions of support for working age, parts of the population, how you address the asset imbalance, I think is a huge part of the supportive state. Thanks, Jonathan. I'd like to thank our speakers, Abigail, Oriana, Julian, Jonathan, for joining us today and for giving so generously of your time and minds. Thank you, good afternoon, take care and goodbye. Thank you.